You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Hey, 26er family, welcome to the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features Abdul Malik Abbott. Abdul is a writer, director, filmmaker, producer, and editor. A native New Yorker, Abdul is a former member of the Boys Choir of Harlem and attended the renowned High School of Music and Art as a painter and illustrator. He would later obtain his bachelor's degree in film from New York's School of Visual Arts, despite having been rejected from their film program when he first applied. Abdul got his start in the business working on hundreds of commercials, music videos, TV, and movie projects, including Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing and Mo Better Blues. After cutting his teeth as a music video editor, Abdul took his first role as director for the Will Smith-backed Philly group, Too Too Many's first video. He would go on to direct music videos for jazz legend Abby Lincoln and a very young Jay-Z, including his videos for Ain't No and Dead Presidents, both of which landed at number one. When the music industry evolved and opportunities for directing were not as readily available, Abdul seized opportunities to leverage his other skills. And today, in addition to the work he continues to do in film and television, Abdul composes and produces music for his group Boss and other artists. Throughout his career, no matter how the entertainment industry has changed, one thing has remained constant. Abdul has maintained a commitment to his artistry in its many forms. So without further ado, here's his story. Abdul, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being here. Already looking at the background of your screen, I know that this is going to be a great conversation um, and a really storied journey that we get to jump into today. So I'm really excited to have you. Great. Great to be here. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. You can still say that, right? Yes. I think I'm on this. Today's like my cutoff for the most part, like unless we're like super tight and I haven't spoken to you yet. I think after the 15th is when I just stopped saying it. Um, (laughs) But we could we could still say it um, at this juncture. Okay. All right. Let's jump into it. Who is Abdul Malik Abbott? Abdul Malik Abbott is a dedicated artist. So that's what I'll call myself. I'm a filmmaker. I'm a musician. I am a producer. I'm a director. I'm a writer. I used to paint. I used to draw. I don't do that anymore. And I think I'm a good human being. I can tell by your energy that you're a good human being I, I, from the beginning, from the moment you you jumped on the screen. So, um, And Demarcus, our, our producer, does a great job of bringing the right energy to the show. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, those are many, many hats that you've mentioned that you wear um, and obviously a multi-hyphenate and a, a really talented human being. But take me back to the beginning. What is your origin story? How did you grow up? Okay. Well, I'm going to take it back to my father. His name was Randy Abbott. He passed away a few years ago. He was a filmmaker uh, and a photographer, and he had a photography studio in Harlem. So I'm from Harlem, New York. Uh, I was raised in Harlem. You know, my mother and father actually got divorced at some point, but I still looked up to him as someone who's out there doing something different. So this was back in the uh, in the 70s where he was teaching at Studio Museum of Harlem. Uh, one of his uh, students was Julie Dash, who did Daughters of the Dust. So I always big up Julie Dash for uh, being around my father. 
and and learning from him because I didn't get to learn from him. She did. So I, I, I'm always honored to even know her. And um, so I was basically just noticing that that's what he was doing. I thought it was cool. I wasn't interested in it. I was a comic book kid, loved comic books. I was a DC DC kid. Sorry to the Marvel people. I'm a Marvel person too. But back then I was into um, comic books and so I would draw all the time. And I was cool with that. Uh, just living my life in Harlem. And then suddenly this movie came out called Star Wars and then it just changed my life. One, it was a great movie, but two, it introduced me to the fact that the people behind the movie can be celebrities as well. Mm. Meaning George Lucas was just as big as Star Wars, even though he was a quiet, reserved uh, filmmaker. To me, I thought he was like, oh, this guy is amazing. And then Steven Spielberg came out with stuff like Jaws. Well, actually, I was a kid when really young when Jaws came out, but I think it was more uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark that got me really interested in becoming a filmmaker and emulating these people behind the camera. I didn't even want to be in front of the camera. Most people want to be an actor. I was like, oh, I want to make movies. So I started just drawing stuff and I would do comics and stuff like that. That was super tedious. Um, so you would spend a lot of time alone while you're drawing. And I would do a lot of animation, single cell animation. That took weeks, weeks and weeks to just do something that's a couple of seconds. So I was like, this is, I can't do this forever. So that's when I started realizing I can film stuff. So I had a, a little eight millimeter camera and I would go around and film stuff. I would tape the camera to my bicycle and try to make it look like I'm chasing somebody. And later on, I would draw little lasers coming out of the, out of the uh, pretend gun just by scratching the, the negative. So I was a creative kid and just really, really loved movies at that point. And, uh, Never, never stop loving films. So oftentimes when a kid is is that interested in the arts in some form or another, other scholastic subjects can feel tedious and like a distraction. So was that the case for you? Were you like in all other forms of academics, like I'm not really feeling that? Or were you interested in other studies as well? Um, I mean, I had to do the basics. So no matter what, I, I had to do it. So, you know, elementary school, you know, you had to do everything. No one cared if you were an artist at elementary school. So I would I would just say by the time I got to high school, I think that's more of the a place where you're really making a, a firm decision on on what you might want to do. So I went to music LaGuardia High School of Music and Art, you know, which spun off um, performing arts. They eventually merged. And for people who don't know, that school spun, spun off the movie uh, Fame. So it was based off of people there. So I was a, once I got into high school, let me go back. At, at, at one point, I decided I wanted to be a singer. So I was uh, I joined the Boys Choir of Harlem as a, as a soprano. So I was a kid and uh, I, didn't, I didn't particularly I was not very outgoing. So I was very introverted. But to me, it was just being around other people and being in, in, in a group of and you had to learn you know, discipline and stuff like that. So I think it was my mother who pushed me into that, to be honest with you. But I did go along with it and did join the Boys Choir of Harlem for and was in the, in the Boys Choir of Harlem for several years and just le learning discipline. So I, I didn't have a strict. Yes, I did. I had a strict upbringing. So I was raised Muslim and, you know, so there was no shenanigans, I like to say. There was none of that. So, you know, you're basically uh, taught to just be respectful, be humble and and uh, 
have a goal in life. So that actually helped. So when I joined the choir, that was one thing. But at one point I was like, I don't want to sing. It's, that's not my thing. You know, if you got to step out and do a solo, I, I was not, I was shy. I couldn't do that. I can't do that now. So, um, so, but yeah, so back to uh, music and art. So once I got into music and art, I really started to focus on what I really wanted to do, which was be an artist. So I was doing everything there from oil painting, sketching, coloring ink, pen and ink, I mean, uh, charcoal, anything you think, art history, but also you had to take other classes, English, French, all that stuff. I, and I, I, to this day, I always was mad that I took French instead of Spanish. Mm-hmm because I never used any of the French and I could be using the Spanish right now if I would have thought about it. So, you know, those of us who did not go to a performing arts high school, but have seen fame, the movie or fame, the TV TV show that came after, you know, we have this sort of mythical view of music and art, right? Of, of that, Like you just picture kids walking around in leg warmers, like, you know, just completely focused on whatever their craft is but what is that balance like when you're a student there from the regular classes to honing in on your talents? Well, uh, and when I, since I went to music and art, the, the performing arts was in another building downtown. So I didn't really experience the dancers. I was more involved with the musicians mm-hmm. and the artists. So, and I think that maybe there was some singing and I can't remember, but it was sort of not like the movie where it's a musical because that would be unreasonable <laughs> and unbelievable. But, uh, you know, I, I was coming up when hip hop was already born. So, you know, I was in class with Dana Dane. If you remember Dana Dane, I wasn't, I went to school with, with Slick Rick, you know, I didn't even know he's British, but he is. <laughs> but, uh, so I'm, I'm with these guys and, and they're my friends and they're, they, they're talented. I couldn't rap. So I, I'd be the one banging on the, the, the locker or banging on the the lunch table, giving them a beat so they can rap. So I was always in the in the in the business of of people creating and and being artistic and and putting whatever building whatever whatever their persona is, especially with the rappers, because you know some of these guys weren't what they came out to be as rappers, but they had to grow into that. So it was just a, a major experience of just sort of like being around people who are emerging. I see Sterling Campbell. He's a drummer. I mean, there's so many people that was in my class that went off to do big and great things. And when you're in that environment where you have aspirations, you have talents, and you're around all these people who have their respective journeys that they're hoping to end up on, did you know at that moment, like, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life? Like, was there that confidence in knowing that you could make a career out of what you were focused on as a teenager? I'm going to say yes, but it was a long journey. Mm-hmm. Um, as, I know, as, as I mentioned, I was doing animation. So while I was in high school, I was still doing animation and I had my Super 8 camera, but I didn't really think about being a filmmaker really until I started taking classes at School of Visual Arts, which, which is a college. Mm-hmm. Um, I would take classes, animation classes on the weekend. So while I'm in high school, I'm taking these free classes and I was I did that for three years. And that's when I realized that, you know, this building right here has a filmmaking course and, you know, you can learn to be a director and you can write and so, stuff like that. Let me take that back. I hated writing, so I don't think I wanted to do that. But I know you could be a director and you could be a cinematographer. That Those are my, those are my two goals. So once I... um. 
once I graduated from high school, I applied for School of Visual Arts. And actually, I didn't get in. Mm. <laughs> I applied and I didn't get in. So, but that was the only school I wanted to go to. Uh, so I reapplied as an artist. I applied as a filmmaker and I didn't get in. But I went and reapplied as an artist. I had, I would say, a lot of great art. So, and I got in. So I was like, all right, cool. I'm, I guess I'm just going to go to the school for art. I didn't really think it through too much. But when I went down to pick my classes, there was still like, a, it was a slight mix up. And they were like, oh, you're here for film, right? And I was like, yeah, <laughs> I'm here for film. So I picked all the film classes. Like I stepped away, went through the book, changed everything and picked all the film classes. And then I got in as a, as a film student. And then uh, I would say like maybe two months in, someone called me to the office and was like, uh, you're not supposed to be in this department. But I was like, you know, I, I talked a good game. I was like, well, you know, I already bought all the books and I already started and blah, blah, blah. So they let me stay. I just had to keep up a good grade point average. So since college was very expensive, there was no doubt that I was not going to keep up a good grade point average. So that's how I stayed in the film world. So I could have went a whole nother direction if uh, they decided they were going to kick me out of the department. I do wonder, like, if we were talking about this day and age, would it have taken them two months to figure out that you were in the wrong <laughs> department? I mean, it could have been a month, but whatever it was, I had already started classes. I already bought the, the books. So, you know, there was no turning back for so, me. Anyway. So having gotten rejected at first to the film concentration, getting in under a different concentration, and then sort of finding this other way, now to proceed on the filmmaking track, did you feel by way of comparison or anything, was that a psychological game for you where you felt like, do I really belong here? Can I measure up to these kids who got in or were accepted this program in a traditional sense? Or did you just have the confidence to believe that this is the lane that you were supposed to be in and you would be successful in it? Uh, it was, I definitely believed in, in my talents. I really didn't care about the other students to be honest with you because I didn't know them yet. So I didn't know who was good and who wasn't. So there was already a bit of um, self-confidence because, you know, it was only like two black people in the, ent the entire class. You know what I mean? Maybe two and a half because one guy was Puerto Rican. So but he was darker skinned Puerto Rican. So you always have to just be better than everyone else. So, you know, I forgot the exact phrase, but you had to be twice as good just to be just as good. So there was no way I was not going to be at the top of the class or at least put out good work to represent. And I wasn't trying to be political and represent the entire community. I was trying to represent my people and make sure that I do make my mother and my father proud. So that was my goal. There was there was no there was no hesitation on like, oh, am I good enough? Because like I said, when you just start, like nobody's great. You know what I mean? Some people know stuff and some people don't. I just happen to know stuff. So thinking back to that time, now you're studying filmmaking. You've moved away from drawing and illustration and all of that stuff. How did the career vision start to come to light? Like there are many different directions you can go in, even as a filmmaker. So when did it start to crystallize for you? What area you wanted to focus on? Uh, well, I always wanted to direct and I, I always liked cinematography. Cinematography was much more difficult than it is now because it wasn't digital. It was film. So you had to really know your chops. You got to use a light meter. You got to know what type of film to buy, the right exposures, the right camera angle, uh, um, 
shutter, shutter angle. So there was a lot of stuff you had to know when it came to cinematography. It was a lot of math, basic, basically. Directing was just as difficult, to be honest with you. So I was just picking, the, I just picked two of the most difficult uh, positions to, to go for. But, you know, I, I do have a, a sense of reality. So I, I knew I had to learn other things. And since it's a film school that teaches everything, not just what you want. So there was film history, film theory. Um, there was sound. There was writing. There was editing, cinematography, directing. So it was a lot of stuff. And then we had to take other classes, too. So it was it was it was a lot to, to take in. But basically, I did the smart thing, which was during the first school break, I just went to the job board and started to intern on on movies for credit, basically. So I would intern. I I interned on a movie called Chain Letters. It's like a low, low budget independent movie. And but you know, I always will say it throughout this whole thing. I was the only black person on that crew. Period. It, it was no question. <laughs> like I would just be that dude. So you know, that's why I just learned and just sort of figured out how things are run on on a set, whether it's big budget or low budget. They're shooting a movie, so I got to learn how things went. Even though I was a PA slash intern. The intern part means they didn't have to pay me, but the PA production assistant part is like, I'm just a gopher, do whatever you guys want me to do. So that's how I sort of started early in the business as like, I think I was 16 or something, or maybe younger. Wow. I was legal. So (laughs) I think it was 16. So you're interning, you're doing the PA thing, studying at School of Visual Arts. What does the next chapter of your career look like once you finish the academic journey? Gotcha. So during school, I did work on a few other films as a PA slash intern. And I just got to meet a few people on set who are already professional. And one person that I stayed in contact with, her name was Barbara Zomb. She was a sound mixer. And that, that was the last thing I wanted to do was be a sound mixer. But that was my way in. Basically, where I met with her after I graduated, she taught me a few things about sound mixing and, and being the boom operator. And um, I just had all the knowledge and then you have to start from scratch. Um, I hope to this day that the film schools teach the business of film because they didn't really teach the business of film. They didn't really say what you had to do to get a job. They didn't say who you should know to get a job. They didn't teach you certain things that I would find today beneficial. So I had to just get out there on my own and figure it out. So I started out at the bottom again with a degree, but now I'm still a PA. I was a PA on the Equalizer TV series, back, not the one with Queen Latifah, um, <laughs> with the British guy, but I was a parking PA. And a parking PA is just the PAs that go to the location before they shoot and put the cones out so no one would park there. And this is in the Manhattan, so you're trying to stop people from parking. So... You know, I'm not a, I'm the skinny kid, but I'm tall. So, you know, some people didn't bother me, but some people just got mad and no one got any fights, but it was, it was a challenging job to stop New Yorkers from parking in a parking spot where they feel like, oh, this is my block. I could park here. So that was my initial introduction into the professional, professional world, because it was a major student. I think it was CBS that, that was doing it. So, you know, they'd come with all the big trucks and everything. And then I would go home. I wouldn't even be there. So that was pretty much after I graduated. Um, I did go to uh, 
I went and I directed a documentary for the Boys Choir of Harlem, actually, after I had left them for years. And I went on their European tour and traveled and, and, and went to England and France and Germany and shot a documentary for them. So that was my first professional job, basically. Even though I was a one-man band, I had to do everything, the camera, the lights, uh, the sound. And it wasn't a little tiny camcorder. It was like a big, giant camera with a big three-quarter-inch deck with a big old battery belt. So I just remember that job probably threw my spine out of, out of, uh, out of whack for several months. So how did that come about, right? Because when you think about a documentary and what it takes to produce, you do think of an entire crew, not not only just one person, but one young guy going on the road and making it happen. So how did that opportunity present itself? Did you pitch it or were you? No. um, So basically through whatever circumstances, my mother actually ended up working at the Boys Choir of Harlem and became the assistant to the uh, Walter Turnbull, who was the um, founder. So I was always in contact with them. So I think they just wanted someone to cover their their tour as a documentary. And it was just an ask. They just said, hey, can you do it? And I was like, sure, I can do it. And that was kind of it. <laughs> so you bring these lights and the camera and all these things, and they're like, I'm just going to do this on my own. Was there ever a moment in that process, though, where you were like, okay, I might be in over my head here? I don't think... It was that I I think it was too. I just always felt it was a bit much to be the one man band because, like I said, it, it's not. It wasn't as tiny cameras digital as it is now. It was. I, I know I have a photo of it of me just holding this thing. So I just felt like, man, I wish I had an assistant at the minimum because if you're trying to shoot and then you're trying to worry about the sound, at some point, some something's going to falter. So that was it. I mean, it wasn't. It wasn't overwhelming. I think it was boring and it was a pain in the butt to be on the on a tour bus for, for several weeks with a bunch of kids who are touring and they were sort of out of control. <laughs> so it was more the personalities that, that got, got on my nerves, but job was what, whatever it was, it, you know, to me, it wasn't the best documentary in the world. Cause I was, you know, I was using faulty equipment and stuff would break down and I'm overseas and they're on a different, like their, their, uh, their, electrical cycle is different than ours. Right. So it's, and everything's passed. So, converting everything. So it was a little difficult. N- never did I like, oh, I'm, I'm over my head. It's like, man, I wish I didn't do this by myself. But were you able to leverage that project to get to the next level in your career or get additional opportunities? No, <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. I can't really say that I did. So I won't. Um, the opportunity came, let's see, how did the, I'm trying to figure out the breakthrough. So the breakthrough was through working on those short, those, those no budget movies, some of the people who worked on it were trying to do short films. So someone had called me to do be a camera assistant on a short film. I, I kind of knew camera, but I wasn't the best at it. Um, but I was just an assistant. So I showed up and once again, I'm the only black person, but hey, there was going to be another black person on that shoot. They thought I was him. <laughs> he was a sound guy and I was in the camera department. So eventually this other guy, his name is Charles Hunt, came. He showed up. He was a sound mixer. He was just starting out. And, you know, I introduced myself. I was like, hey, I'm Abdul. They thought I was I was you. Isn't that funny? Blah, blah, blah. So we stayed in contact. And then down the road, he 
called me up out of the blue and said, hey, I need a boom operator for an MTV commercial that they're shooting. I was like, yeah, I could do that. I never really did boom operating before. I, I did know a little sound from that person who had introduced me to sound you know, a year, a few years ago. And then I studied sound in school, but I didn't want to do sound, so I didn't care about it. But I said yes to the job, went to the job, and we met a grip, another Black guy, like, oh, three Black people on the shoot. Yeah, someone's going to call the cops. <laughs> but um, he was cool. His name is Marcus Turner. And he was like, hey, man, it's a Black sound team. Wow, that's pretty cool. There's a movie coming up called Death by Temptation, and Ernest Dickerson is going to shoot it. Ernest Dickinson shoots for Spike Lee. I think they had just finished school days. And um, I was like, all right. So we went, we both went in for that job to work on this movie called Death by Temptation. I think it was just called Temptation at the time, but it was called Death by Temptation. Kadeem Hardison was the star. Bill Nunn was in it. Uh, Samuel Jackson was in it before he was big or anything like that. And uh, so we worked on that. And that's where we sort of started to meet all these black filmmakers that we didn't know existed. So the crew was was mixed, but there was more than what I ever saw on a set. So I worked on that movie as a boom operator. It was That was tough. It was a tough gig because I was new to it and it was low budget. So the equipment didn't quite work all the time. And my friend Charles was being grumpy to me and I hated him at the time, <laughs> but we're friends now. So once that ended, there was another job that was coming up and that was uh, Spike Lee joint, Do the Right Thing. So mm. everybody was like, oh, we're going over to work on Do the Right Thing. Of course, I wanted to work on it, but I didn't get called for it. Charles got called for it, and they had another sound guy mixing it. So he got called to work on Do the Right Thing. I can go to details, or I can kind of over broad do a broad stroke. So you let me know. Let's go into the talk. details. I mean, you just mentioned Do the Right Thing. So okay. anybody listen, listening to this, their ears are going to perk up. Absolutely. So okay. you should feel free to dive as deeply as you would like to. Okay. So yeah, so there was already a sound team and they were it was a union gig. So it was already a sound mixer and a boom operator. My friend went over, Charles went over to be the third in the sound department. So I was like, oh, I want to work on it. And like, because I had made friends with all those folks from that other movie and they all went to work on it. So I remember going to visit the set. They had just started. And um, I was like, man, I really want to work on this job. And then... Something happened and my friend Charles got another gig like in Africa. And he was like, oh, I'm going to go to Africa. You could take my place. So that's how I got on it a week later and pretty much started working on Do the Right Thing, which was all on one block, by the way. It was never anywhere else. So, you know, I was a Manhattan snob. <laughs> and I, but so I had to drive the best eye every day. I had a little hoopty car. And uh, basically I had made friends with a camera assistant from the other job. Her name is Darnell Martin. So she was working on Do the Right Thing as well. And so I would pick her up in the morning, drive the set every day. But it was it was a great experience. And that's pretty much where I met almost half of the people I, I know now was just from one movie. So even people who you were like, oh, this guy, what's his name? Uh, Martin Lawrence. You know, Now he's a huge star. But back then he was just this funny, skinny guy just told a lot of jokes. But he was funny. Like Martin Lawrence was hilarious. And then Bill Nunn and John Carlo Esposito, like all these people, Rosie Perez, like they're all there. And then you got the the OGs, which is um, I guess Sam Jackson wasn't an OG. He just had the OG flavor, but <laughs> he was he was still coming up. Um, but we did get to work with Ruby D and people like that, where they're icons. 
And the whole shoot was was one of those, I can't say it was politics, but, you know, Sharp, Sharpton would come by and like all these people would just stop by the shoot. And I think there's a documentary on that where people would just show up. And but it was a great experience. And I got to meet so many people, Robbie Reed and and uh, uh, Academy Award winner uh, Ruby, uh, what's her name, Ruthie Carter, who, who won for Black Panther. Mm-hmm. So I got to make friends with all these folks who went on to do great things. And a lot of my friends who were assistant here and assistant there, they went on to be good, great directors as well. So when you're in an environment like that, you know, when you see these retrospectives for the 25 year anniversary of this movie or the 30th for that, there's always people who are like, you know, the moment I stepped on that set, I knew it was something special. I just knew in my gut. You always wonder if they really knew that or if they're just engaging in revisionist history because of what the project has become when it has reached this iconic status. What was that like for you? Did you know that something special was brewing or did it feel like this is just a good job that I want to be on? Well, I knew something special was brewing because the movie was so unusual, you know, and the reality it takes place in one day, 24 hour period. I knew it was special one because I was working on it with Spike Lee, who, who to me was an inspiration for sure. Uh, he didn't have that many movies out, but to see someone who looks like me and is and street hip, you know, even though he was kind of nerdy, but, you know, his character Mars, Mars was was street hip. So I identified with that character. And um, but also just seeing our people working on this movie in, in, in different departments was inspirational. Uh, I didn't know how the movie was going to turn out, to be honest with you. But the experience was was priceless to me. So I would always I always credit working on this movie at the minimum as something that just inspired me to say, hey, you can do this. Like you can be in this industry. Now, nothing was easy. I can guarantee that. But I did find that being on that set set the tone of like, okay, so if you do this, you can do that. You can do this, you can do that. So, and also other people are like, not scheming, but other people are planning on their careers as well. So you're trying to figure out what's my lane? How am I going to get to where I want to go. Being in the sound department is not going to do it, by the way, right. but it does help pay the bills. So what did the next transition look like? Knowing that like, okay, where I am, I'm not going to get it this way. What did right. the next step look like for you? Well, the goal, always the goal was was directing. That was mm-hmm. up here. I was down here. I'm trying to get like, wait, I was down here. I'm trying to get up there. So where, where we were in the industry, there was the music video world was 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 blowing up. So MTV was out, you know, MTV, I think was, was out for a while, but I was an MTV kid. Like I loved MTV. I, it, I didn't, I didn't flip out if there weren't black people on it. Cause I just like music. Yeah, of course I was mad that they weren't on it, but it wasn't like, oh, I'm never going to watch MTV. I still watch it because I like, I liked the Billy Idol and the culture club and Duran Duran. Like I was the nerd, you know, I liked that stuff. So, but there was also video music box eventually that came out where you can see the hip hop videos. So to me, I didn't care, but my goal was like, okay, so I like music videos and they're accessible, meaning like you can actually shoot them. Like, you know, it's not something that is a major motion picture where you got to have so much energy behind you that it probably would never happen. Music videos, you have the, the crew and everything and you need the job and the money, but it's possible to do that. So my goal was to direct a music video, be a music video director. 
So how am I going to get there? <laughs> I don't know. That was the thing. Like, how do you do that? So I did a music video in college. It was terrible. You know, the artist was terrible, but I still did it. They played it at a club, nightclub. I was so proud, but it never made it on TV. It was a horrible video. So I knew I had a long journey to go. So I was like, okay, well, I'm already in the sound department. What are my other skills? Oh, I can edit. I'm a decent editor. Now, I hated editing, by the way, but I, I, I knew how to do it. So, I, and keep in mind, I'm taking courses here and there outside of college. So I took some classes at Educational Video Center and Downtown Community Television. I'm going out of my way to learn this stuff where other people are out playing basketball. I, I wasn't a sports person. I, I liked the Yankees. I played Little League, but that's as far as it went. So I and I'm six two, and I was like, "How come you're not playing ball?" It's like, there's plenty of people playing ball. I'm trying to make movies, so that was my goal. I was, I, I always felt slightly outside of what whatever everyone else in the hood was doing. And keep in mind, I'm in Harlem, so it's like, right. and people in Harlem aren't really feeling Culture Club or Duran Duran. You know what I mean? So it's not like I was hiding it. It was just sort of just I can identify with the streets, but I can I can also identify with the world, and I know it's a bigger there's a bigger world than just uptown. Mm-hmm. So with that knowledge, I decided, okay, let me see if I can edit some stuff. So I would start editing projects, documentaries mostly, which you know is not the best thing to to show off your flashy skills because it's it's really more reality. And then there was this one movie that came out called Streets of Fire, and they had this opening which was cut to music and it was dipping to black. It was very MTV style. I was like, oh, I can do that. I like that style. So I think I tried that on a couple of projects. And in the meantime, I'm trying to build a reel, but I don't really have a reel because I hadn't, I hadn't done a music video yet. So back to the sound. So I'm doing sound, doing good gigs here and there. But the thing that changed uh, my career path was also doing sound, but also doing sound on music videos hmm. where I was in charge. I was the playback person, which is the person who takes the machine Back then, it's not like your iPhone uh, now where you can just go play it on a digital thing. You had to have the, the Nagra recorder this, with this digital slate and speakers and all that. So I was in charge of that. And sometimes I would re- record the artist live for the music video. They might have a little scene with dialogue. So I was starting to do that. And within that world, I'm still the only Black person on the set now, except for maybe a PA, maybe wardrobe. And that's that. And then the artists. Because I, I was genre tired. were you working on at this point? Uh, at the genre was mostly hip hop and R and B. So hip hop and R and B, but you were still one of only a handful of right. So black I mean, folks on the crew. Yeah, black folks were not getting work. I mean, yeah, in the Spike Lee world, that was Spike Lee University. I call it like that was a that place was like the best place to be black. But in the reality, it ain't gonna happen anywhere else. So I would show up on set. I'd be the brother on set. And I would just do playback on these videos. So any any artists in in the early late nineties, I'm not late nineties, I late eighties or in early nineties, I was on those jobs. Anybody you can think of, name one artist, I probably worked on a video. But in my mind, I'm like, okay, how is this gonna get me to direct? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what I did was I realized this is is a business. So who do I need to buddy up? with a buddy up too. And that was the the video commissioners who were hired by the label, record label. So the record label had a video commissioner, which is a person who oversaw 
the production of that artist's song. So I started to befriend those folks because I was the person who's playing the music, which is basically what they represent. They represent the artist and the music. So since I'm playing the music, they always got to talk to me. At least they got to hand it to me at the minimum. And then I would be friendly with the artists. So I was just basically planting seeds. Like, how am I going to make this work? Can't really go to the artists because they don't really have any say so. So I would just befriend the the, uh, uh, the video commissioner to the point where I was like, okay, so let me figure out how I'm going to get an editing job because I want to do music videos and maybe I can get in as an editor. So luckily I had a friend who started a production company and then she hired me to edit a music video. I never edited a music video before, but she let me do it. I think it was for Kwame. If you remember Kwame, mm-hmm. so I think it was for Kwame. And so I did it and she, you know, she gave me tons of notes. I was like, wow, this is harassment. <laughs> but she did basically teach me how she edits. Like, this is what I like. I, c- I couldn't say anything because it's like, I don't know what I'm doing anyway. So I'm just doing it. So I'm learning on the job. And um, so that was the one video I got. And then I would get, I got another one with salt and pepper. I, no, maybe it was Queen Latifah. No, it was salt and pepper. The next one I did was salt and pepper. And so I was doing double duty. I would be on the set doing playback and then separate check, by the way, <laughs> then you edit the video. So I, would, I did that for a little while and I was building up a reel of just editing. So at one point I was starting to plant the seed in the video commissioner's heads that, hey, I'm an editor, I'm an editor, but I want to direct, I want to direct, I want to direct. So luckily at some point, I'm skipping a whole lot of stuff, but luckily at some point, uh, one of the uh, video commissioners at Jive Records and Carly, always give her props, uh, said, okay, I got to a group that's looking for a director. It's a new group. They call Too Too Many. It's like a really kind of a bubblegum hip hop group. If you want to do the video, you know, write a treatment and we'll see what happens. So a treatment for people who don't know, is like, it's basically your pitch on what the video, the music video is going to be. So they give you the song, you write it out. If you're smart, you'll do a lookbook and, you know, stuff like that. Storyboards, if you're really gung-ho. So I was able to pull in all the favors because they only had like, I don't know how much they had, like 18,000. I mean, that sounds like a decent amount of money today because everything's digital. You could do it cheap. But back then it was film. So to get a crew and a stage, art department, cast and everything for a music video for 18,000 was not easy. Mm-hmm. But I called in all these favors from all the people I met on Do The Right Thing. I did skip another movie though. I, I did go on to work on Mo Better Blues. Mm. Well, so on Mo Better Blues, you know, that's that's the crew 2.0, because then the crew sort of like even got blacker. <laughs> so, you know, and, and people moved up in their positions. My position on that one was playback, ironically. So I was playing back the music for Denzel and Wesley and Giancarlo and Bill Nunn to play on stage, but they didn't really play. The only person who really played was the drummer. Mm-hmm. So I was in charge of that. And sometimes that would be second boom. So that was already set in motion with being still being in the sound department and at least mastering the uh, art of playback, which is is more technical than anything. And it's more and it's also just paying attention uh, because you could ruin a job <laughs> if you don't know what you're doing. So then back to the the video. So basically it was a video that I did for Too Too Many called Where's the Party? It's my like my first gig. And luckily Will Smith produced that song. 
or co-produced the song. So he was in the video. So I was like, oh, my first video, I got Will Smith to be in it. So we shot the video with the group in New York. And then I had to drive to Philly with a tiny crew and film Will Smith just doing some ad libs and stuff like that. And that worked out, but it was just one video. So that didn't really move my career anywhere. It gave people like, oh, he did a job. Okay, great. Um, and I think it played on TV a couple of times. So, you know, that's to me, that was a big deal. But I, I never just sit on on one success. You have to go to the next one. So the next one I did was for jazz legend, Abby Lincoln. Now, Abby Lincoln um, has been around for decades. She's a jazz singer, actress. And this was also for Jive Records. So I'm, I'm, you know, I've made a connection with the record label. But this is jazz. This is right. traditional jazz. This has no hip hop whatsoever. So I, the treatment I wrote, I made it so it's a little more hip than what you would think. I had these kids in it and made it like the Blues Brothers. And so that was a, my second video. But it didn't get me much play because it's jazz. Right. And only play, I don't even know where they played it, to be honest with you. But I was just glad to work with her because I knew who she was. And this and is pre-internet. So I'm thinking... Now I'm trying to wonder where if I ever saw a jazz video before uh, the internet was a thing. Yeah, you never really see. You only see like maybe, maybe like Naji or, or uh, I forgot the name of the other guy with the cur- curly hair. Naji, right. It was like yeah, you rarely contemporary see. jazz, right? Right. So this one was probably just overseas. I don't even know where they played it, to be honest. I never saw it on TV. So I was like, okay, well, I have that. The resume is getting bigger, but the jobs aren't flowing because I just had a jazz video and a pop video, pop rap video. And that was it. Um, I think the the big break came when another record label exec that I worked with time and time again, it's like, oh, I got a video for this group called Original Flavor. And they're, they're signed with the, with Atlantic. And she was like, well, they got this manager. His name is Damon Dash. And, you know, he's kind of arrogant and kind of a pain in the butt. But if you can deal with him, and I'm like, well, he's from Harlem. I'm from Harlem. I'm cool with everybody. I don't care. So yeah, I'll work with them. So I wrote a treatment. I met with with Damon and the group and we we got along and got the video. And that was pretty much the the real introduction into like stuff that people saw. So you right. know, and within that video, I, I I guess I can't minimize this. So within that video, there's like this one cat in the background who's an extra who let us film his car, film uh the group driving up in his car. Uh, it was Jay-Z. He hadn't really came out yet. He was doing little cameos here and there on different artists, uh, including Original Flavor. But I just remember I remembered him only because we were shooting at a bar, but it wasn't open. And uh, apparently he was trying to buy a bottle of uh, champagne and they wouldn't sell it to him because it was illegal because the bar wasn't open. So someone was like, oh, you got to talk to this guy. He's being, you know, he's getting a little aggressive and we can't really, you know, sell him. Can you just talk to him? So I just went up and said, hey, we can't really sell you the alcohol because the bar's not open. He was like, all right, cool. And that was it. I was like, okay. I, I never even thought twice about who this guy was, to be honest with you. And he, and he was in the video, but he was barely in it. So months later, that video came out. It actually ended up on TV and it was like on rotation by the time, B, you know, BET was playing videos and, MTV started Yo MTV Rap, so it was it was I was getting some play airplay, and then just one day at a random meeting, I ran into Damon Dash downtown. He was like, "Man, I want to do a video for for my boy Jay Z. We're starting a record label. You want to do it?" And they had like no money, like literally like no money. And I always say, "Keep in mind, this is film, so film is just not cheap. Film right. like a roll of film is 
a hundred something dollars and it runs for maybe 10 minutes. So no matter what, you can't just roll with just the camera. You need lights because, it, it, you know, it's a whole big thing. But luckily, I've been working now. I made all these connections, all these friends. So I was able to put that video together um, with favors, basically. So they had a little money. We got the camera, had to use insurance, got to buy the insurance. So we went and shot in Marcy. And then it was just basically using the favors I had. I ran into someone who was um, repping a steady cam operator. And that steady cam is where you put the camera on a little rig and it, it looks like it's floating. And he needed stuff for his reels, so he came in for free. So we did this video called I Can't Get With That. And it was Jay-Z's first official video. Shot Marcy, shot downtown Brooklyn, and had a bunch of people in the video doing cameos. And that one was basically just done for Video Music Box, which mm. is that channel in New York that plays hip-hop videos. Because no one would really play him because he wasn't signed. It was He was independent. And they didn't even have a Rockefeller Records didn't even have an office yet. It was just an idea in their heads. I mean, they had the, the label, but it wasn't set up yet. So that was the introduction. So like I said, I can go too deep. So you want to push me along, feel free. Yeah. I mean, well, it's it's interesting that you mentioned Video Music Box with the documentary that came out recently on the phenomenon that was that show. And it really was the hub for hip hop and for artists to be featured and for everyday people to be featured as well. And then the whole Yo MTV Raps thing, you know, we could spend an hour talking about that piece, uh, basically following the format in a lot of ways. But at that point, you know, so I think when I think back to hip hop videos, it's funny that you you mentioned like the budgets, because my mind, when, when I read about your story, immediately went to like the bad boy era when you were getting a million dollars to shoot a video. Right. Or waterfalls, these these really high tech. R&B and hip hop videos where they were dumping money and kind of forgetting that 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 was a moment in time. And before that, you know, the resources really were not there in, in this sort of earlier phases of rap and hip hop. And also what is surprising to me is I don't think I realized that early on people who didn't look like us were directing uh, these videos and really putting them out there. Um, but now you're in the situation where you have a couple under your belt, Rockefellers in its embryonic stages doesn't really, you know, it's not, it hasn't really become what we know to be Rockefeller today, but the foundation is being laid. So for you, right, you've now shot, you shot Original Flavor with, you know, for Jive, you shot this one for them, but the relationship continued to right. the videos that we all know now today that are, are are quite popular. So after that, you know, the first one is is out for Jay. How did the the next videos when Jay-Z is Jay-Z and Rockefeller is Rockefeller, how did those come about? Um, let's see. Well, the next one was would be uh In My Lifetime. Uh he had a song called In My Lifetime. And they're like I said, they're still trying to figure themselves out. I'm still trying to figure myself out as a director, trying to get more work, but they're trying to get deals, distribution deals for the label. So I we got the one video I can't I know we already did that one. So we got the video in my lifetime. And that was basically a definitely collaboration because we didn't know what to shoot at that point. Cause I remember it was January in New York and it was freezing. So I don't know who pitched the idea. I think it was them. Cause they were like, let's go to St. Thomas and shoot the video. And I was like, bet let's do that. So they went and scouted the, all the locations without me. They just went and did it. So all the locations in that video, 
it was like the precursor to big pimping, you know, without mm-hmm. the big pimping budget. So, uh, so next thing you know, we fly in a like ton of people out. I, I had my skeleton crew. I was really starting to build my crew up of people who I want to keep working with. And it was maybe six, a six man crew, but everybody else was extras and homies and background people. So we all flew out and, and went and shot that video real, real guerrilla style mostly, but we didn't have to steal any locations because they knew all these people who had the yachts and the speedboats and the mansion and all that. So they were sort of living that life, but not putting it, not putting it in my pocket, but they were still living that life. Uh, you know, we didn't have to get fake diamonds for Jay. He had them. He had real diamonds. So we didn't have to worry about that. So doing that video, did the In My Lifetime video, maybe it was Payday that released it or a profile label. I'm not sure. So we did that one. That one was released. You know, it got a little play here and there. Uh, he's still not, you know, nationally known. He's more local. I think the thing that changed was there was a moment where they got another deal. So we did a remix of the same song. So we took the video from St. Thomas and then shot some more footage at a at an Italian gangster restaurant. Or I think it was a real gangster mob restaurant in, in Brooklyn. And cut that together. And they had a deal with another label. So in the meantime, he's putting records out, doing cameos on other art with other artists. And I'm trying to shop my deal. Uh, I mean, a, a, a director's deal with labels. So I'm showing the, the labels. Hey, this, you know, take a look at this guy, Jay-Z. You know, he's still looking to get signed. And so I'm selling I'm selling me, but I'm also selling him. <laughs> like I'm, mm-hmm. I wanted him to get a deal or, or Rockefeller to get a deal. And, and they would always pass. Oh, no, 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 no. We got Biggie because Biggie had just came out. So Biggie was repping Brooklyn and they were good with that. So that was pretty much what I was doing for a little while. And then Rockefeller had other artists. So I did a couple of other videos um, for other their other artists, but they never came out. Like they decided to drop them or whatever. So, but the, the relationship was solid. So, you know, thinking back to that time, how many years had you been out of School of Visual Arts at that point. We're talking about sort of this period of trying to pitch yourself and Jay-Z at the same time to to labels. It was probably like five years, probably like five years, five or six years before it really got things going. Yeah, I would say that. So, you know, for five years, in hindsight, doesn't seem like a lot of time to build a career, particularly a career in this business. But back then, did you feel like this is really taking forever. Like when is the big break, the really big break going to come? No, I I didn't, I didn't think that because I was always working. Mm -hmm. And since I had a lot of other skills, like, you know, I, I sort of have, I I sort of have to focus on, on what I'm doing. So if I'm making money and I'm not doing anything illegal and I'm doing stuff that's in, in my wheelhouse, what I studied, I'm kind of, I can't say I'm good with that because I'm, I'm still ambitious, but I'm okay with working my way up. And if you, and like I said, if you're making money doing it and I already know how difficult it is to actually get hired for anything, then I was cool with it. You know, I just, I just, I still had the aspirations and still had the dreams. So it wasn't, I was never, of course I want things to move faster. And, you know, I see other people going up the ladder quicker, but I never really, I, I, don't, I don't have that way of thinking like, oh, this needs to go faster. So what did you feel like after having shot a few videos with the Rockefeller crew, what did you feel like was your next moment where your career really leveled up? What was the thing that you felt was the next tipping point? 
Um, good question. I'm gonna stick and stay with the whole Rockefeller crew. So I think once we when when we did Streets is watching is pretty much when I was like, okay, this could be something big because mm. it was different uh, for people who don't know what Streets is watching is. It's a long form music video that was sold in the stores as the first VHS tape, if we remember those, and then eventually DVD. And within that group of songs, it was basically going to be the B-sides, B-sides of, of, of songs that he had out, like meaning he already had the first album, Reasonable Doubt. I'm not quite sure if the singles were this, that, or the other, but he was just going to do stuff where he would take stuff that he wouldn't put on the radio and do music videos for those. And those weren't going to be super flashy or anything. Those were going to be kind of gritty. And a little backstory on that is like, by the time we got up to the streets is watching, kind of skipped a bunch of music videos that I did for them, but other people were now buzzing in their ears. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's other people coming around and doing videos for them. So, you know, that I'm a little pissed off about. So that, that I can say, you know, yeah, that wasn't cool because I'm like, what happened to the loyalty? You know, when you get a bigger budget, they went to Hype Williams. So when they went to Hype Williams and they did Sunshine video, with uh, Foxy Brown. I mean, I I did the ain't no ain't no nigga video. That was number one. How come I can't get you know the the video with a bigger budget? Whatever. I wasn't that salty, but I was kind of pissed. Um, but basically, that video sort of backfired for Jay because it was very pop, and you know they had the fish eyed lens, and it was it was that you know Puff Daddy vibe, mm-hmm. uh, where this, you know my vibe was more street. So the Streets is Watching project came out. I think Shaka Pilgrim pitched it to Damon and then Damon pitched it to me saying, we want to do this long form video. We want to keep it street and make it real gangster and try to tell a story with these B-side videos or B-side songs. So that's how that project came about. And also it was different because like I said, it was for sale. It wasn't for TV. So I think we put one of those, one of the songs was released as a single, which was the song Streets is Watching, but everything else was B-sides meaning it's only sold on the it's only on that video. And eventually we did face we when we did face off with Sauce Money, that one made it on the Playboy channel because it had topless women in it. But <laughs> so only two of them really were released separately. So that pretty much set a set a tone out there for myself where I don't know if tone is the right word, but it's it set a, set something out where Hey, this guy can do stories and you know, he's not following the trends. I wasn't following the trends. I was trying to be myself and try to tell a story. So people noticed that. So that was a, a change basically. Now a bunch of movies didn't come my way, but he got a lot of recognition. And then people wanted to emulate the 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 stories, the storytelling music video, where a lot of other people were starting to go towards that flashy, shiny suit look. Um, but I still kept it to a storyline. So in hindsight, I was like, mm, maybe I should have went that direction too. But, you know, I just had a goal in my head that if I keep telling these story-driven videos, you know, maybe I'll be able to do a movie or maybe I'll do a TV show. Yeah, I mean, you that's actually a great segue. You kind of set me up for the question that I had. When you move in, in an industry like this, where it's all about the creative mind, but there are also trends. And... You'll you'll turn on. I remember turning on the TV back then and you would see dozens of videos with the same look. Everything was shiny and over the top. You're coming at this from a different vantage point. Now, 
thinking about how your career has gone over the years um, and how it has evolved, how do you maintain a sense of authenticity and stick to your eye and your style when the checks, the executives, the opportunities might be saying that something else is what's popular right now? Um, you just got to weigh it out, meaning like, are you making a living? Are you happy being authentic to yourself? Do you like what's trending? Do you want to do what's trending? <laughs> That's the thing, because, you know, you want to have the opportunity to be an artist because I'm an artist. Also, I'm not just, you know, pushing buttons. You actually got to come up with the idea. You got to deal with certain personalities to to get people to dance like stripper. You know, it's it's sort of like you have to figure out what's good for you. You know, in reality, yeah, I would just if if they just kept coming and what well, we just want this video, we want you to do it and we want it to look like that. Then yeah, I probably would have done it, but no one was doing that. I was always pitching my because then when you write a treatment, no one says we want a booty video. They just said write what you what you feel or what do you think the song is is showcasing. So I would always try to write a story, and that was pretty much what it, my goal was. I didn't really think, and it wasn't me being political, like, oh, I don't want to exploit anyone. But, you know, it wasn't that. It was just like, well, these guys are already doing it. You know, what's what, what, let me do something else. So, so I just stuck with that. Yeah. And, you know, I think your story, there are a couple of different lessons to glean here primarily. And this is something that has been talked about in, in media as of late. And that is like networking across. So everybody wants to get to the person that's at the top of the food chain and not realizing that there's value in making those connections and relationships with those who are kind of early in their career as well. And you evolve together. That's the first thing. Secondly, you had a vision very early of what you wanted to be in the industry, right? Directing and all those other things, but taking on these other skills and not just taking them on in the sense that you were taking the jobs that were available, but studying them and honing your craft in other ways, which is which I think is important. And also not necessarily being driven by the biggest paycheck out there. Sometimes it is about taking the, the opportunity as well. And these, these storied journeys with many, many chapters, I think sometimes because we're in this era now where people seem like overnight sensations, and because we do have the internet and social media, and folks are getting plucked out and getting these major opportunities. The younger generations, I think, don't often see the value of starting as a parking PA or, you know, starting in an area that may not be what, where they really want to end up. So how do you see sort of the digital era and the things that have, the way things have evolved and the ability to get exposure earlier, a detriment in some ways to folks like professional development? Yes and no. I mean, the bottom line is there's the industry that is serious and there's a lot of money on the line and then there's everything else, social media. Social media exposures could get you money, but it might not. It might get you recognition if you're, you know, you know, I don't, I'm, I don't even know what to call certain people who just put out material because now they just call it content. And like before I was like, what's content? Anything's content. So, you know, back in the day, and I don't even want to say back in the day, but there is very specific things that you do as a filmmaker and as a director that there's a lot of thought that goes behind it. There's process, there's money, there's other people who you have to collaborate with. And, you know, these days, you, most of the stuff, you can just take a phone and just go ahead and do it and, and it's done. It's all in the one, it's just in this one little phone. But before there was at least, you know, eight people you had to at least collaborate with. 
to get something that looks decent. So now it's just like what's in the content is going to make you stand out. So if there's something that's worthy in the content, then you're ahead of the game. But if you're just putting stuff out, you're just putting stuff out. It doesn't make you less of a filmmaker. But once that real opportunity comes, all the stuff that you were doing as as a, a, a solo person doing content on the Internet is out the window because now you got millions of dollars on the table and people aren't trying to throw that away. So it, it, it takes a, a, a minute to sort of grasp how people can come up in the industry now versus how you came up in the industry when there wasn't the Internet and social media. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I find that, you know, both work, but you can only go but so far on the social media side. And, and we know the music industry has changed quite a bit as digital has taken over uh, as well. Music videos, different budgets, different. Uh, so how has your career evolved as the industry has evolved as well? I mean, at some point, I, I just couldn't get hired to do the music videos that were low budget because I didn't want to do them. So mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't want to do a five thousand dollar music video because, you know, reality is that's my salary. This, that's but now if it's the whole video. I mean, if you made five thousand in a video, you're like, oh, man, that's, you know, reality, that's a lot of money, but it's not. You know, you want ten thousand. So, yeah, ten thousand was my salary. But now if the whole video is ten thousand, well, how much can you make? Five hundred, a thousand. So you have to figure out what you want to do and how you're going to top the next uh, video that you've done. So I just decided to not try for it. And then they were still doing big videos. But like you mentioned, the vid- the industry changed. Positions changed. A lot of people who stuck around the label people um, just got hired, period. Like, we're just going to hire this person because there's not a lot of these hundred, two hundred, $300,000 videos. So this guy's reliable. Whatever deal they cut, they got. So, you know, I can't say, oh, they stopped doing high budget videos, but they did. There was there was basically three tiers back in the day. There was it was like, you know, the million dollar videos and you got the ones. It was probably like four. You had the big, giant million dollar videos. Then you had the ones that are a few hundred thousand. Then you had the ones that were just a little bit under a hundred thousand. And then you had the ones like twenty five and below. Mm hmm. That was kind of like the ballpark. So I was sort of around the hundred thousand dollar videos. That was where I was. That was my playground. So to go from that to five thousand dollars, it's it's not worth it. Right. So the music video world sort of went in the same direction as like soap operas because soap operas were big. There was soap operas on all these channels. People were working. People, you know, actors were being on soap operas and going off to have other careers or they just stuck with soap operas, but suddenly they're gone. (laughs) It's like, I think there's one or two maybe. So you just have to adjust and figure out what you're going to do. I think soap operas eventually turned into, to a web series, you know, web series. And that sort of, sort of, it's still around, but people realize you ain't making no money in a web series. (laughs) You know, it's, it, 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 I, I, I think NAFCA, what was it called? NAFCA, it was a NAFCA, the, Whatever that company was that was selling or giving away the music, pretty much. Oh, ruined. Napster. Yeah, they just pretty mm-hmm. much ruined every a lot of people's careers. Oh, for yeah. sure. That that's when everything switched. And so, 
if anybody's like, oh, that's dope. Napster, Napster was was the bomb. Like, yeah, but so many people lost their careers and their and their jobs and their livelihoods and the production companies closed and people moved back to New York or wherever they were out there out in L.A. It's like a lot of things happened just because people were stealing music. Right. And, you know, now, especially having worked and been in New York for the last 12 years or what have you, meeting people who are stuck in middle management in media or TV network or doing something totally different, trying to get a, a small business off the ground. And, but when you ask them about their their career prior to now, you know, you'll hear these stories. Oh, I worked at Columbia or, I, you know, I was a high powered executive at this place. But when those jobs went away, there was nowhere else for them, them to go to have an equivalent title and experience in a different industry. Right. And some of them like have never recovered. They've never gotten back to the same level financially from a status, professional title perspective, none of it. Right. So luckily I still had those other skills. So that, that helped um, move forward. If I wasn't directing, I can edit or shoot. So, you know, by the time I was, by the time it went digital, when everything started to go away from film and like the Canon, the Canon 5D, when that came out, at first I was scared of it. I was like, I don't know how to use this camera. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the meantime, I I was shooting like a lot. Like I would be a videographer for BET or or OWN or, you know, a lot of VH1 stuff. And I would just, I just took a career in that once the music videos sort of teetered out. So I was just on different job shooting. Until the 5D came out, then I realized, oh, I can do cinematic looking stuff that's different than what you would do with a P2. The Panasonic P2 was popular at one point, but it had a video lens. So then I started shooting again and then I would shoot music videos for no money, but that's because I love, I still love the art form, but I actually created a band um, because I was a frustrated musician. (laughs) We kind of skipped over that part, but I was a frustrated musician that, you know, love, I love Sade. That's like my um, go-to artist of for style so I had created a band, and I'll tell you the story real quick, but there was this artist that came out, I think her name was Kesha. Kesha? Kesha? Yeah, Kesha with the dollars and, on. And she blew up. And I thought the song was terrible. No offense, Kesha, if she's listening, but I thought that song was horrible. And I had just started dabbling with, with the digital workstation on my computer that where you could do music. And I was so mad that that song was blowing up. I was like, I'm going to just do a song and get a model friend of mine and just say something on the mic and let's just put it out as as a goof. So I created this song. You know, I'm still learning how to use, it was GarageBand. I was still trying to learn how to play that stuff on, on, and, on into the computer. And I came up with this reggae beat and I had let one of my snobby New York musician friends hear it and he actually liked it. And I was like, he was like, oh, you should do something with that. I was like, yeah, I was planning on doing this goof song, but maybe I won't do that. So I kind of killed that idea. And just out of a chance uh, of an actress friend of mine, um, Don Noel, had introduced me to someone who was on The Lion King, just moved out to L.A. And her name was Natalie, Natalie um, Ridley. And um, we started talking and she, you know, she was an actual sister with Afro and everything. And I think we're just kicking it. We became quick friends. And I was like, yeah, I'm trying to, I'm trying to do a, a song. And she was like, yeah, I'm trying to write a song. 
and I'm a singer and I'm, I'm just getting started. And I was like, I'm just, I'm a producer just getting started. So we collaborated on this song called Come Again. And we created this band called Boss. Um, and at the time, people were saying the word boss a lot. And I wish I never, <laughs> to this day, I'm like, eh, I don't know if I wish, if I would have known better, I would not use that. But it was B.O.S.S. And like whatever it stands for. At one point, it was like big on sexy shit or big <laughs> on sexy sound. Or, but like I said, we were just going to do one song. So to put that out together, I created a band just because I hated the music that was coming out. And I wanted to do a music video that I wanted to do. So we we did everything. We created this, produced and created the song, uh, did a video. We shot it in like four days, which is, we had no money. But we shot mm-hmm. a video in four days, which is a lot of days. So we shot in LA, we shot in New York, we shot in Brooklyn. We just happened to be in all these places within, you know, a two or three week period. And, you know, the video didn't go anywhere, but the song, people liked it. They're like, oh my God, you could play music. So it was a big surprise for a lot of people. So we we released it on on iTunes and Amazon, and it it sold. But you know it was you know we didn't have a machine a marketing machine behind right. us. But to me that was just me wanting to express myself as an artist and taking the next step to actually make it happen and not wait for someone to to, to green light me and say, all right you can do it now. It's like no I'm just gonna go ahead and do it. Mm-hmm. So we ended up uh, putting out two albums. A uh, bunch of music videos, trying to get her back in the studio now. But, you know, the COVID thing is sort of messing, messing it up. At the end of the day, real creators are going to create, even if it means charting your own course and creating those opportunities yourself. You know, I think that that definitely separates those who are just sort of interested in the shiny aspects of an industry or a career path and those who mm-hmm. feel like they were they were they are called to it. They'll find yeah the opportunities and if they can't find them, they're going to make them themselves. Right. And I think the other thing was this, this project, uh, the music project. And if anyone wants to go check it out, just go to the website is bossmusicny.com. That's bossmusicny.com. And now we just stuck to our, our, well, I don't know if it was me only, but <laughs> I stuck to what I loved, mm-hmm. which was that era of sound, the Sade sound. And it's not all Sade sound, but, is a combination of what I love, which is reggae, uh, sort of like the British soul and melodic stuff, Hall & Oates style or, or um, Brand New Heavies or Seal, even like Isaac Hayes. You know, people like that influenced me. Um, Maxwell, I can't say Prince. I can just say Prince is the God. So I can't, <laughs> I can't say he inspired me. But those, you know, those artists just stuck to their particular sound. And for me, that was a good sound, which is, ba- you know, the the main pieces of instruments, bass, drums, percussion, strings, guitar, and some horn, some horns and the vocals. That was, you know, that's what I wanted to do. And that's sort of where we, we stayed, where a lot of, you know, we experimented in different sounds. Um, right now I'm trying to do maybe a little more electronic, but I'm, you know, I'm trying to stick with it because mm-hmm. I see how at the time, you know, Maxwell, I thought was brilliant. No one could really match Maxwell's style. He had his own particular style. So I, I also like that style. Um, and I think then now we have someone like Lucky Day who comes out and he has that style. And her, she sort of has a, a more soulful style. So I always gravitate towards soul music versus traditional R&B music. Absolutely. So how are you now balancing your time between music and film? 
Well, the music is always unfortunately secondary because mm-hmm. it's not, you know, something I can do. You know, I have to be inspired to do it. And then, like I said, COVID has really put a damper on a lot of stuff. But, you know, I'm 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 back to the editing. Uh, I mean, I did a lot of projects. Let me let's back up. I did a lot of short films because I wanted to get into TV. And, then you know, I did a movie, State Property. And that, you know, that was done right at the tail end of of the urban flicks or the hood flicks, you want to call it. So that little it was like the little movie that could. Uh, it was a movie starring Bean, Beanie Siegel and Jay-Z. You know, I, I'll say it is a hood flick. 100 percent but it was yeah. popular and now it's like a cult classic and now you know now they now they have power and now they have um what is that bmb something it's on yeah, the bmf uh show now they have that on on um stars and when the once they put that on then they put they property back on stars so I, like i know i'm influencing them for them to pull that out of the archives and put it on their streaming channel so i've been doing a lot of short films but trying to do stuff that's not, you know, uh, you know, hip hop or urban or whatever you want to call it. You know, you sort of fight these labels, even though you you enjoy them. And that's sort of where, where you are in your brain, where you want to do something that you understand if it's you know, I, don't, I, I guess the term I don't know who came up with the term urban, but um, I thought it was a little odd. But, um, you know, the gangster flicks and all that, you know, but that was my genre. That's what I liked. But it didn't have to just, you know, no one's going to say that to Martin Scorsese. Maybe they do say it to Martin Scorsese because I know the Italian community wasn't always happy with his portrayals, but he was good at it. Mm-hmm. So I kind of felt I was good at the um, the hip hop gangster vibe. But, you know, that's that passed. So I did a, a couple of films, uh, Curse of War, which had to deal with the P, uh, PTSD from a returning soldier. I did a, a short film called Balance of Power, and that was actually told through music more experimental, almost a fashion film. And I did all the music, but I did it on the low. Like I put my uh, my um, pseudonym on it, DJ Abby Ab. And that one, you know, the, like these short films won a bunch of awards and stuff like that. But then the market is flooded, mm-hmm. short films. So you really don't make a lot of money from them. But, you know, it was playing on Amazon. It's still on Amazon, actually. I don't think. And, but that also been editing, so... I teamed up with uh, Angela Robinson Witherspoon, who um, is the uh, widow of John Witherspoon. And we did a couple of projects. We're working on a project right now that I'm editing, shooting, and co-producing. It's on Betty Saar. Betty Saar is an artist uh, out here in L.A. She's 95. Mm. And we've been working on this for several years. So that's what I'm currently doing right now. And producing, I do some producing for AFCA, which is the African American Film Critics Association. So over the pandemic, we were doing award shows virtually. Right. So I'll be doing these. I'll probably be doing that within the next few days, actually getting started. I think getting started Monday. So we're not sure if we're going to go virtual or in person. But basically, we would we would have our show before the Oscars. So we would get all the just pick all the right people. And usually the person who we pick goes on to win an Oscar. Wow. Which is always very cool. Last year, like last year was virtual. The year before was virtual as well. Actually, the year before it wasn't virtual, but last year was virtual, and um, so that's that's what I'm doing now. I, I sort of just squished everything together, but those are those are the key things I'm doing. The the Betty Sar documentary, which should be you know should be very interesting because it shows a journey of someone who's been doing this for so long. But she also started late in life. Mm. I think she started in the 30s, really, and but she's just starting to get her recognition in her 90s. Wow. 
that's that's a long way to wait, long time to wait. But um, you keep a lookout for it. It's, it's, you know, it's a positive, positive project. So you've continued your career has taken on many iterations, but you've continued to work right through, right. through all of this. And so looking back on this journey uh, of all these years, describe a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Hmm. Say that one more time so I can think about it while you say it. <laughs> Describe a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Man, but that's every day, though. That's every day, unless I'm not doing anything, because mm-hmm. it does take a lot of effort to just create something. You know what I mean? It takes I was just I just had a conversation with a producer friend of mine and she was talking about a script that I wrote. And she was like, well, why did the person say that? And and you said this in the script and you did that. I was like. That's because I was, that's what I was thinking at the time. So it's like everything I was, and the point I was making is like, nothing just falls on the page. Also I'm a writer as well, but I, I know I didn't mention that. And I'm in the Writers Guild. I'm also in the Directors Guild. And I do a lot of uh, uh, events and, and um, all sorts of things with the African-American committee. It's called the African-American Steering Committee. So I've been on that for several years and we, we do a lot of talkbacks and Q and A's and stuff like that. But the point I was making is like, to answer your question is like every day is like that mm-hmm. because you have every day is I have to motivate myself to to do stuff. I've never had a nine to five ever. Wow. I mean, yeah, if you work on an, on a particular gig, it, it's but it's still never a nine to five corporate job. I've always had an artistic related job. Um, I think the only time I worked in a restaurant is when I was in college. I was like a bus boy at uh, Tortilla Flats, downtown New York. And uh, I had like a friend who worked there at another place called Gulf Coast. Oh, the same owners. And he also was wanted to be an actor and a filmmaker. And he went on to do it. His, his name was um, Vin Diesel. <laughs> but back wow. then, you know, it was uh, Mark Vincent. So, you know, you always get these people in your life that you sort of try to connect with when they started, but no one has money, you know what I mean? Right. So, like I, he was like, I want you to direct my short film. I'm going to star in it, but he didn't have any money. So I couldn't do it because I couldn't do it. And the thing is, I, and I tell a lot of people is like, I can do, I personally can do it, but I know that there's other people that need to be hired to help me do it. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to put it all that weight on my shoulders. So I have to sort of pick and choose sometimes. And sometimes I regret it. That one, I don't regret at all because I, I really had nothing to do with his success, but I always wanted to, I, I always wanted to work on his job uh, or his short film, but it just couldn't, he didn't have a budget, so I couldn't do it. So looking ahead to the next chapter of your career in life, what do you want out of the Abdul Malik Abbott brand? Um, I, st- I definitely want to direct TV. I'm writing a TV series, dramedy right now. I have a couple of scripts that I wrote both um, crime dramas. One is a love story crime drama. The other one is more of a just action crime drama. So that's my that's my wheelhouse. But I also can write whatever comes my way if I get paid to do it. <laughs> that's the key. Writing is hard to sit and just write for free. Spec scripts are no joke. And uh, I always say writing and editing are the both most time-consuming gigs mm-hmm. um, and lonely gigs because you can't put... For me, I can't play music while I'm editing or writing, maybe instrumental or- orchestra music or something like that, a soundtrack. But it's just, you just sit in a dark apartment 
Well, mine is dark. <laughs> you sit in, in front of a computer and you just got to put in that work. So I don't even know if I answered your question, but uh, what do I want to do? I want to, I still want to keep directing and producing. I added producing onto the, onto the list mm-hmm. and writing if I have to. I, if I can stop editing, I would, but it helps pay the bills. So I will do it. Camera, I'll do it here and there. Um, but I tend to find like, you know, I can't keep up with the technology. Like I can't keep buying cameras because I use it. Well, I'll just keep following oh, the Mark II is out. Okay, let me get the Mark III. Okay, now that's taken. Now the Mark IV is out. Now the Mark V is out. Oh, now we got the C300 and now the C303. You know, so you sort of, they keep changing the technology so much that it's hard to master it. So I sort of just fell back on that a little bit of of shooting because I couldn't keep up with owning the equipment. Mm-hmm. Which I'm glad you referenced that because... People have these idealized visions of what they think it means to be a filmmaker or, you know, a cinematographer or director, not realizing that there are very real concerns and limitations, which may impact the direction your career goes in. Even for somebody like you, who's been in this business now for decades, there are resources and financial investment, you know, and time investment that it takes that may actually dictate kind of the direction that you take. Um, that may not be the same if you had unlimited resources. Right. I do find that, um, you know, there are certain people who will give themselves the title because they did the job, but they're not really a producer. They just produced something and they put it out. You know, they might have paid $100 for it. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that makes you a producer, but in reality, it does because you said you were, but you're not. You know, you got to, you know, I don't know. It's, it's 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 a weird thing when someone just says, oh, I'm a director. Like, what have you directed? Nothing. But I, I direct. Well, I directed my friend's little short. OK, you're a director, but I don't know. You just got to respect the craft a little bit, mm-hmm. um, a little bit more than just grabbing that title and running with it. Because, for example, someone had told me that they're a DP, a director of photography, but they didn't know anything. I asked them a few questions. They didn't know about a light meter. They didn't know about, you know, all those basic things that you thought you should know. They just didn't know. So maybe you're just a guy with a camera. I I call him GWC. He's just a guy with a camera. They just, you turn it on and make sure it's in focus and you got exposure and you shoot. But when it comes to balancing the lights and, you know, all the, all the, all the other fun technical math that comes with it, I don't think you can say that because as soon as you if someone hires you, you're going to be ass out when when you can't perform. So that's why I'm real particular with titles, mm-hmm. especially for me. I'll never say I'm a director of photography. I'll say I'm a videographer or, or a lighting cameraman. But can I light it and light an entire movie? No, I mean, no, <laughs> I can't. I mean, I can have the the vision like if I was directing it, I can say I want to like this. I want it to look like that. I can tell somebody how I want it. I can you know, say maybe you can use this, but there's people who are experts in this. So let everyone do their job. Don't try to do everybody's job, even though I can maybe do half of them, but it doesn't make sense to do that because that's not how the business is run. That little little nugget of advice is a great place to end on, I think. Okay. <laughs> well, listen, thank you so much for joining the December 26er family and appearing on the show. But before we let you get out of here, tell people where they can find you online. I know you mentioned 
boss's website, but if there are other places that you that they can find you online as well, please feel free to share. Sure. You can find me on Instagram at DJ Abby Ab. That's DJ Abby Ab. Um, Blue Music Productions on Instagram. And my personal website is abdulmalikabbott.com. So that's A-B-D-U-L-M-A-L-I-K-A-B-B-O-T-T.com. Yeah, that's pretty much where you can find me. I think that's where you guys find me. And if someone writes an email, I always respond and I try to I try to uh, give good advice when people ask for it. I can't hire anybody, so don't. <laughs> Actually, sometimes I can, but that's that's a whole nother. There's a, if, all right, if there's editors out there with a dope reel or DPs out there or cinematographers with a dope reel, feel free to send me your stuff. But acting wise, I don't I don't really I'm not hiring. So hopefully folks won't send me a bunch of emails, but I definitely um I definitely do answer anybody's questions when they need advice or stuff like that. Well, and I, great. And I try not to read un, unsolicited scripts because one, it takes too long to read them. And two, I don't really want your ideas in my head while I'm writing something else. That's how frivolous lawsuits happen. Yes. Right. <laughs> exactly. But if you got money behind it, feel free to contact me. Awesome. Well, to our listeners, you know what to do. If you have questions, if you are legit in this business uh, and would like to connect as well and, and display your talents as uh, behind the scenes, a behind the scenes professional within the film and or music industry, feel free uh, to reach out to Abdul at the, the mediums that he's actually described. Also, if you've enjoyed this episode, like, share, subscribe, tell somebody about it, comment. And as always, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER.